This podcast is presented to you by the Young Adults Ministry of Faith Chapel San Diego. To find out more, please visit faithchapelsd.com. How many love Pastor Josiah and the job that he's doing? What an awesome, so grateful. Since I was coming in here tonight, I, I, my thought was that I would roll up my pants and put cuffs in them and I'd get a cap on, I'd put on backwards and and I'm like, I am just not that cool. I cannot pull that off. So I just can't even do that. So I just thought I'd try to be myself. And, and, uh, but it's great to be here tonight. So we're going to hit a topic that it really is a kind of a throwback from the series of To Be Honest. And it was something I, I've, I wanted to address, something I've wanted to address really for 10 years since I've lived here. But it's what's the Bible say about alcohol? And, and here's, here's what I know. I already know that there's pushback in the room. Like some of you are already leaving. You know, stick here, right? stay around. And, 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 and I also know this, is that if you're looking for, if you're looking for a, all right, see, the Bible says I can't, then you'll probably find that tonight. And if your stance is absolutely not, well, guess what? Then you're going to get some information that will enforce that opinion as well. And so you'll have that at your disposal tonight. And so what I want you to do is I want you to just come at this with an open mind and an open heart. And I want us to look at some of the passages that deal with the principles behind what we're going to talk about. For instance, the Bible doesn't say anything about thou shalt not sext. For those of you that don't know, that's texting a naked picture of yourself to someone else. It doesn't say that. Thou shalt not do that. How many think that's wrong? Why do we think that's wrong? It's not in the Bible. How many of you believe that abortion's wrong? Do you know there's not one single passage in the scripture that says, thou shalt not get an abortion? But why do we believe and hold dearly that that's wrong? Because there are some principles in God's word that are revealed around that particular action that we go, that's wrong. We don't, we don't believe in that, that we don't want that to happen, that God, he, that we hold life in, in you know, the sanctity of life very, very highly. And we believe that it's not ours to take or to give away, but it's the Lord's. Amen? And so the, and we're going to come at it with the same approach tonight as we're dealing with this subject matter. And so what I want to do is, is I just want us to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. And, and I have like three hours worth of material. And um, that didn't excite anybody in the room but me. But I will try to keep it going, and I'll try to give you all kinds of different things as we go tonight. But let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus... We thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much for your spirit. And we pray, oh God, that you would minister to us and that you would help us, Father, to have your mind, your heart, and understanding, Father, in all that we do. We're so grateful, God, tonight that we could just come into this place and worship you in spirit and in truth. We're thankful, oh God, that tonight that we can even gather and have this freedom. So, Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name, that, Lord, that you would that you would speak clearly to all of our hearts and that you would allow us, oh God, to hear your voice over what you desire for us so that we can live a life of honor, live a life that honors you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, let me know when I'm, so I can put this down because I'm more comfortable with that. All right, so let me just give you a couple of things before we, we kind of get into this. And, and, and I'll, I'm gonna go quickly. The first one is this. Listen to the entire message before and not just react to one line. All right, so I'm going to ask you, please listen to the entirety of the message and not react to only one line. And number two, if you disagree, then that's great. But make sure that your disagreement is not based on tradition or experience. Make sure that you disagree and that you have Bible, like chapter and verse, ready to share, right? Like, I'll listen to it if you want to talk afterwards. But don't come to me with your opinion. Don't come up with your tradition. Don't come to me with what you think is right or what you've been taught. Is right. Tell me what you believe based upon chapter and verse, and then I'll listen to you all day. Number three, how about we don't get angry with one another? <laughs> all God's people said. And no threats, please, because I don't. I take that personal. And number four, let's realize that we're all a part of God's family. We want to stay that way. And lastly, let's just be open to asking God to maybe change our position, regardless of what that would be, so that we can we can live a life of honor to the Lord. And before we begin, I just want to start with First Peter chapter two, verse eleven, because I think this gives us four principles to kind of base things around that maybe aren't as clear. As you know, thou shall not. It's it's on. Yeah. Okay. 
And so we already know the enemy's trying to destroy the message. So, amen. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 gives us four principles that I think in anything that there's thou shall not, so that's kind of in that middle ground, maybe the gray area, if you would call it that, I think this gives us some foundation. So let's look at it very carefully. Dear friends, anybody friends in here? Okay. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. There are some things that there are some things that we're asked to abstain from, sinful desires, we call those temptations, that are waging war against your soul. How many of you know there's a roaring lion looking to whom he may devour? How many of you know that his job is to kill, steal, and to destroy? And how many of you know that there are things that are warring against your soul and your spirit right now to try to bring destruction into your life, into your life, right? And verse 12 says, live such good lives that among the pagans... So we, when we leave here tonight and we step into the world, the word to live such great lives, good lives, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, our good deeds, our actions, and glorify God on the day that he visits. Verse 13, how do we do this? Well, we submit ourselves to God for the, for the Lord's sake and to every human authority, dealing with spiritual authority, whether to the emperor, to a supreme authority, to the governors who sent to punish those who do wrong and doing good to those who serve. Verse 15, for it is God's will that by doing good that you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people, those people that are bringing these false accusations to us. Verse 16, live as free people and do not use your freedom as you cover up as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, the family of God. Fear God and honor the emperor. So let me just give you these four quick principles. I don't have any notes, so you can write them down or you can put them in your phone or your iPad, whatever you have tonight. But number one is this. The, world's, the world has desires that are in conflict with God. We all know that, right? There are desires that are of this world that are absolutely in direct conflict with God. We call those temptations. I talked about it a second ago. Number two, there's a battle. The battleground of the war is played out in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes. The battleground of this war that we're in plays out in our words and our actions and our attitudes. So number three, how we live our life then is seen by other people. And number four, how you live directly influences how other people view God. And so we want to live a life that is honorable, that is worthy enough, that is consistent enough that when people see us, they see God in us. Amen? They see God in us. I mean, that's the whole point of being an ambassador of Christ, that we are Christ ambassadors, that wherever we go, that people see Christ in us and they desire to serve God because they see something on the inside of us. So our life is different than that of this world. Can you say amen to that? So within what does the Bible say about, what does the Bible say about drinking? Well, there's all kinds of extreme positions in the church. And if you've been in the church for any position of time or lean a length of time, you know that as it pertains to alcohol. For instance, there's a zero tolerance policy. There's people that have this zero tolerance price. Like for instance, like if you're sick, you can't have any medicine that has alcohol in it. You can't, you know, if there's, you know, mouthwash, no, no, if it's got alcohol in it, no, you can't have it. You know, like zero tolerance. There's a moderate position where Jesus turned the water into wine, so it must be okay as long as you're not drunk on the wine. Oh, kind of a moderate position. There's the quit Christian witness position that says, hey, we don't want to cause others to stumble. So if we're in their presence or we're with somebody else, then we don't want to, then we don't want to do it because of that. And then there's a leadership position because it tells us that in the Bible that if we're going to be leaders of God's flock, if we're going to be overseers, then, then we should not drink alcohol. I mean, there's all kinds of different positions. In fact, the reason why there's so many different positions and things are changing up here and getting echoey, but the reason why there's so many positions is because there's over 200 verses that deal with alcohol in the Bible. And can I just give you some like negative examples and I'll give you some neutral examples in just a moment. But the negative examples would be this, Genesis chapter 9 verse 21. Noah, for instance, or, or uh, yeah, no, he drank some of his wine, he became drunk and he lay uncovered inside of his tent. So we see the result of, of being drunk. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 30 and 39, when Lot lay down with his daughters. Lot's daughters got him drunk on two separate nights. They slept with him in order to get pregnant to extend the lineage because there were no other men that were around and they had sons and those sons became the nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites. If you know your Bible very well at all, you know that the Israel, the nation of Israel, they fought the two biggest nations that they fought the most were the 
Moabites and the Ammonites, right? And those were conceived out of a time of, of you know, getting their father drunk. Esther chapter 1 and verse 2, the king gets drunk and he, and he bashes on Vashti, the queen, and then he begins to look for another queen until he, you know, gets her out of the way. In Daniel chapter 1, Belshazzar curses the god by drinking from the temple cup and even worships the god, the false gods of gold and silver. And while drinking these things, he's eventually put to death. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 36, Nabal was so drunk that he couldn't understand anything from his wife. She had to wait till the next day to even communicate to him. They're in the minor prophets. Drinking and drunkenness were causes of sin, such as sex, or even selling women. In Joel chapter 3 and verse 3, says, They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes, and they sold girls for wine to drink. Hosea 7, 5, you can look that up, Habakkuk 2, 15, and on and on and on and on. There's some neutral positions. For instance, in Psalm chapter 104 and verse 14 and 15, there seems to be a blessing that comes from the Lord. He makes the grass to grow for the cattle. He plants for people to cultivate. He brings forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to sustain their hearts. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul instructs Timothy, he says, stop drinking all, only water and use a, a little wine for your stomach's sake, for your frequent illness. He's saying that I, it's medicinal. Go ahead, you need that. And in John chapter 2, we've already talked about it, where Jesus turns the water into wine, and so it seems to give credence to that. And that's what most people go to because it's a New Testament passage. Let me talk about spiritual leadership for just a minute. In Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 8 through 11, it says this, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or any other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. He said, you're going to be priests and you're going to be priests in my temple and you're going to go into my house and you're going to be in my presence. He says, so if I don't want you to drink any wine or any fermented drink of any kind or you will die. This is what he goes on to say. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, for the generations to come. These are priests. How many of you know we're priests unto God? In fact, the Bible says we're a royal priest, a holy nation, a people that are belonging to God, who've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, that we're to come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, for we're to be holy. So we're all priests now, not just the priests that are like me that are serving in the church, but we're all priests unto God, and it's supposed to be a lasting orange for all generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common. Why is this so important to God? He wants to establish something that is between holy and the things that are common. And this deals with drinking. So he's saying, I want, to understand, I want the rest of the world to look at the church and the priests that are in the church, and I want them to recognize that which is holy, people who don't drink, and that which is common, those that do. Now, he didn't call it a sin here, but he's just saying there's a distinguishing difference between those that are in the house of God and those that are not in the house of God. Those that are wanting to walk in holiness and those that are wanting to walk in what is commonplace in this world. Between the unclean and the clean. Well, that takes it to a place of standard, at least of righteousness, of not complete holiness. That I want to make sure that people understand those that are in the church, not only are they, I want them to understand that those are clean and then there's also unclean. What are, what's the reference here? Drinking. Not just drunkenness. This just says drinking of any fermented drink at all. And you can teach the Israelites all the decrees of the Lord has given them through Moses. 1 Timothy 3.3 says, do not be addicted to wine at all. Proverbs 31.4 and 5 says, for it is not for kings, we're talking about leaders, people, and authority, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what they decreed and they'll pervert the rights of all who are afflicted. He said, we don't want you to be, in other words, if you are in place of decision making, if you're a leader, if you're a leader, I don't want you to drink, he's, the scripture saying, because I, I don't want you to be impacted by that or forget what you have done. Meaning there is an influence that happens upon you if you drink. And Proverbs 23, 29 says, do not join those who drink too much wine. Isaiah 5, 11 and 12 says, woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after their drinks, <clears throat> who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Isaiah 23, 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. I think we call them bartenders. I'm not sure. Anyway. <laughs> Ephesians 5, 15 and 20. It's okay to laugh, by the way. It's okay. 
It'll make it, make it go down a little easier. Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, it says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So how does God want you to live? He wants you to live what? As wise, not as? So how do we do that? We make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So not, we're, we're supposed to live as wise and as not foolish, but not as unwise, not as, you know, not as fools. And what is, what is the Lord's will? Verse 18, so do not be drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, sing to one another, and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the question? The question is, can I drink? That's the question everybody asks. Can I drink? Pastor, can I drink? Can I just submit to you that, that just like the Pharisees of old that walked around asking Jesus' question, I think that's the wrong question. And I think we have a tendency within our own human nature and our own human desires and temptations to always want to ask the wrong question. Like many of these social issues, we ask the wrong question. I think the right question really is this, is not can I drink, it should be should I drink. And I cannot with integrity, listen to me, I cannot with integrity say that there is one verse saying that if you drink alcohol, you won't go to heaven, you'll lose your salvation. I can't say that. And I'm not sitting here saying that tonight. The Apostle Paul leads us in a discussion about our lives and how we're to live our lives before other people in Romans chapter 14. And we're going to look at that. But I can't sit here and tell you, and some of you are like, aha, I'm ready to leave now. I got what I needed. Right? I can drink. Pastor said, it's okay. I didn't say that. I just said, I can't sit here with conviction and tell you there's not a verse that says, thou shall not. But again, I think there's a lot of principles that if you'll stay with me, that maybe, just maybe, you'll get a different opinion about this. In Romans chapter 14, 15 through 18, Paul is walking through this with us. He says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. If I bring distress to you because of what I eat, and he goes on to say, drink, then I'm no longer acting in love. What is the highest quality that we're supposed to act in? Love. The Bible says that we're to do everything in love, everything in our life. We're supposed to be motivated and our actions are supposed to be full of love. That's what we're supposed to do as believers, that do everything. Paul commands us to do everything in love. And he says, if you bring distress at all to your brothers or sisters, if you do that at all, then you're no longer acting in love. That's kind of a high standard. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone whom Christ died for. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives a human approval. See, what I believe is I believe that the scripture is very, very clear on drinking alcohol and drunkenness. In fact, the question I've heard before is this. I don't get drunk. I, I do it in moderation, so it's okay because I don't get drunk. Anybody heard that argument? I believe this is the absolute worst argument at all, of all. The worst. And some of you are like, I've used that argument. I'm not putting my hand up anymore. <laughs> Let me explain to you why I think that's the worst argument at all, this moderation argument. Because we wouldn't, if moderation, I mean, let me, let me say it this way. Since when has moderation begin, has been the goal of any Christian? When's it been the goal? When has moderation been the goal of any Christian who wants to live a life that honors God and pleases him? For instance, who defines what moderation is? What's the definition, the biblical definition of what moderation is? That it would apply to all areas, including drinking. And how... Who defines how many drinks is a moderate lifestyle? We don't teach moderation in any other area of Christianity. For instance, in sexual purity, if you're married tonight, you wouldn't want your spouse to go, it's okay, I've just dabbled with another person just a little bit. It's been in moderation. We've only kissed, so it's okay. That wouldn't be acceptable to you, would it? We don't teach moderation in the area of pornography. It's okay. It's only 30 minutes a day. Just in moderation, it's okay. It's okay. We would never accept moderation in that area. In fact, 
if you think about it, we don't accept moderation in any other area of Scripture. We don't accept moderation in any, in any lifestyle area of in Scripture. In fact, Jesus wants us to live a completely radical, sold-out life where we lay down our lives completely, pick up our cross, and follow him. Where Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, maybe the temptation or selfish desires that we have, or maybe the desire to drink, and lay those things down so that we can pick up our cross and live a life that honors God. It's a life of radical holiness that Jesus calls us to that isn't preached to much today. But we don't expect moderation to work in any other area of the Bible, so why do we take the moderate approach when it comes to alcohol? Because see, here's what moderation really teaches us, isn't it? Moderation teaches us this, that it's okay to get as close to the line as possible, but do it without crossing over and sinning. That's not what we see working in Scripture in any other area. I mean, we can all agree that drunkenness is unholiness, right? Like if you're drinking to excess, you get drunk. We can all agree that's unholy. Amen? And the natural conclusion of drinking to is then it's just too much alcohol. Which is why it makes sense then for me, I say, to abstain. And I'll tell you why later on. When Christians drink, it puts them on a path away from holiness. And it puts them on a path of moderation. Why dance so close to the line that when you, abs- when you accidentally maybe fall, that you cross over it. And it has devastating consequences to you, your family, your lifestyle, your ability to make a living, and your children, and all those that you influence. So I believe that Jesus calls us all to radical holiness, to lay down our lives, our desires, to come out from among them, to be separate from the world, to set apart our lives so that we can bring glory and honor to God. I remember the day, anybody have a, I remember the day moment? Most people, if you're old enough, you remember the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked. You remember the day when 9-11 happened. You know exactly where you were. I remember the exact place, the exact time, and the exact moment that I began to ask my mom a lot of questions. I love my grandparents. I grew up in a small community. I had both sets of grandparents living in that community until my dad got transferred and we moved away. And so I was lucky to have both sets of grandparents that I could, we could go to at any night of the week and spend weekends with. And they were in every one of my parties, every one of our Christmases. It was a joy. But I began to get a little bit older, and I remember asking my mother about why does your brother have a different last name than my grandfather? That shouldn't work that way, right? And I remember the exact place that I was in the exact moment that my mom began to explain to me that your biological grandfather was an alcoholic. And when he drank, he wasn't a happy alcoholic, he got mean, and he would beat your grandmother. I never met this man, but I hated him already, honestly. And he abused me, and I now did not like him even all the more, and I'm a child. And he passed away from alcoholism, you know, from conditions related to alcoholism, and we moved in with your grandparents for a long period of time, who are still alive, my great-grandparents. And then grandmother, your grandmother, got remarried to who your grandfather is now. Fast forward several years later, I find myself in a junior high biology class, and we're studying this in school. And it says that alcoholism can be hereditary. And that it many times skips over a generation and goes to the other generation. So I'm thinking, my grandfather, my mom doesn't have it, now it's my generation. I'm not a Christian at this point. My mom and dad drink casually. They have alcohol in our home. But I made, a cautious, I made a conscious decision in that moment, listening to what they were saying about science and listening to how it may skip from one generation to the next, knowing that it might be my generation. And logically, as a seventh grade boy, I said, I will never know if I'm an alcoholic unless I try a drink. But if I try a drink and I'm an alcoholic, I'm stuck for life. So I never want to find out. And as it would go, that very same week, they start passing around this thing in band class saying that, hey, there's this big party going on and there's going to be kegs there. You need to come. And I said, no. And they came up to me at the end of the 
class period and they say, you've got to come. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be cakes there. There's going to be girls there. There's going to be music. It's going to be fun. And I said, no. I was nervous. I didn't want to say no. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a part. But that was the best thing I ever did in my life. I didn't know it at the time, but you know, I never got asked to another single party the rest of my junior, senior high school career that had alcohol in it. I assumed the conversation went something like this. Hey, we're going to have a party. Is alcohol going to be there? Don't ask Brian. He won't come. I never had to say no again. I was never tempted again because I said no one time. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA, says genes are responsible for about one half of those diagnosed with alcoholism. See, I, I just assumed that science was right, and I may have gotten that gene from my grandfather who abused my grandmother and my mother because he drank, and I didn't want to bring that into my life or to my family. So I just chose, even without God being in the equation, that I wasn't going to allow that to be duplicated in my home. It's so easy to move from moderate to excessive drinking. 51% of Americans say they drink regularly. That's over half. 38 million Americans binge drink at least four times a month, and that doesn't even include underage drinking. One-third of the American families are adversely affected by someone who has a drinking problem. Social drinkers. If you're a social drinker, you have alcohol in your home, like in our home. When I grew up, not my home now, let me be clear. 66% of the children experiment with alcoholism before they get to become adults because it's there. They see their parents doing it. The American Society of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry states that children of alcoholic parents suffer abuse and are four times more likely to become alcoholics themselves. One in four children who begin using an addictive substance, including alcohol, become addicted before their age of 18. So what I'm trying to say is that kids follow our example more than they follow our advice. You see, no one sets out to become an alcoholic. And no one decides to have a drinking problem. Yet, one in 13 adults in America have a drinking problem and are considered alcoholics. Some suggest that that number is even greater. See, becoming an alcoholic starts with just one drink. And if you never start, then you don't have to worry about trying to stop. And that was the position I took as a junior hire. If I don't start, I'll never have to worry if I am an alcoholic or not. I'll never have to know if I have that gene or not. I'll never have to focus on that temptation or not. I'll never have to worry about trying to overcome that issue in my life ever. Because I'm just not going to introduce it into my life. Let me just throw this in the mix. Alcoholic beverages today are different than they were one century from now. You can do all the study. We don't have time tonight. I wish I had another hour. I really do. But the process of distilling alcohol to produce a larger content or a higher proof strength of alcohol didn't even exist until the medieval period. So it's just different. Household wine is very different today than it was household wine in Jesus' day. And by the way, I have this whole thing that I do on love, and everybody knows the three words in the Bible for love, right? It's agape and phileo, and we love, and when pastors preach on that, the brotherly love, you know, that phileo love, or we have agape love, that's the God kind of love, and we, you know, we love that, right? Do you know there's different words for drink or alcoholic drink in Scripture that have different meanings to them? But we want to discard those. No, no, that's not what those mean. No, no, it, it says wine. So we're going to go ahead and keep drinking. It's just an excuse to continue to indulge, I think. I've never seen, I've never been to a place where drunkenness was the norm and the name of Jesus was being lifted up. I went to Indiana State for three years before I got sent to Bible college by the Lord. And I was elected in the fraternity house as the treasurer you know why I was elected treasurer? It came with free room and board. It was awesome. I was elected treasurer because they're like, okay, everyone in the room drinks but you. And the last treasurer would get drunk on the Friday night parties and spend every last dollar we had. And we couldn't have a Saturday night party. And we had to wait for next month until all the money came in from the rent so we could start having more parties. So since you don't drink and you're not going to overspend our, mo our party money, you're the new treasurer. Yay, I get free tuition. I mean, I get free room and board. 
That's how I got elected. <laughs> I know it's crazy. But it was in those frat days where I saw drunkenness and I saw all these things that took place. And I've never seen or heard a drunken party that turned into a prayer meeting. I've just never seen that happen. I've never seen the police called out to a drunken party where police officers came out and said, you know, the people in there are showing signs of the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> Maybe you have. I've just never heard of it. I've never seen it. But I have seen people have sex outside of marriage due to drunkenness. I have seen fights break out that wouldn't otherwise break out because of drunkenness. I have seen DUI accidents occur because people were drunk and changed the lives of people. I have seen people wake up in bed with people they didn't know in places they didn't know where they were because they were drinking. And I've seen people lose their jobs because of alcohol. You say, Pastor, we would agree with all that because you're talking about drunkenness again. Well, that leads me to another question then. And it's a question, it's a sincere question. What is drunkenness? I mean, if you want to go there, and that's what you want to hang your hat on, and that's what you want to hang your Christianity on, and that's what you want to hang your testimony and your witness for God on, then let, let's talk about it. The elephant in the room, let's talk about it. Do not be drunk on wine. Okay, so what is drunkenness? What is it? I mean, is it really the .08 California law? I mean, I don't think Scripture was like, you know, in 2,000 years, California law is going to be .08, and so we're, we're going to put drunkenness in it. And besides, it's different for every state. So how, how would you know? That's not, even a, that's not even the standard in state to state. How do we really understand? How do we really know what drunkenness is? I mean, I learned that every time you drink that you're destroying brain cells. I'm not smart enough to lose brain cells. So I just said, I'm not drinking. You know, I, just, I need all of them that I can get. Maybe you've got extra. If you do, find a way to get those in me. I'll take them instead of, you know, instead of that. And, and, and I say that with all, and with all sincerity, even though I'm joking a little bit and we laugh. Why would we destroy the temple of the Holy Spirit that God has given me intentionally by putting something in my body that would destroy or destroy the cells of my mind I, I don't know so again i ask you the question with all sincerity what is drunkenness and who determines it because it's absolutely not clear in scripture and maybe it's not clear in scripture because we know that there's going to be different kinds of strength of alcohol that in the medieval times now we're going to distill it it's going to become even more powerful so god doesn't put some kind of standard because he knows it's going to change and again, I go back to we're all called priests of God anyway, and priests aren't supposed to have any unfermented drink on our lips. See, the alcohol, and when alcohol affects your ability to minister or lead people to Jesus Christ, I think it has to be considered a sin. In Romans chapter 14, verse 20 and 23, it says, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food or drink. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat or drink wine or, or it's better to eat uh, not eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that may cause your brother or sister to stumble it is better not to eat drink or, or eat meat or drink what it doesn't say anything about drunkenness there it just says it's better not to do it if it causes somebody to stumble i'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because i wouldn't embarrass you but i know based on statistical data that there's people here that have dealt with alcoholism in your past you can come on Tuesday nights and you can go to celebrate recovery and you can go into one of those classes and you can sit in there and you can listen to people every week say, I'm a recovering alcoholic and I've been clean so many weeks or so many months or so many years. These are our brothers and sisters that are part of the body of Christ that we invite over to our house and we don't realize what their background is and we don't know what's going on in their life or we go out to a meal with them and we think it's okay and so we order something. We're actually becoming a stumbling block to that person in that moment. Verse 22 says, so whatever you believe about these things, you can believe whatever you want, he says, but then just keep them then between yourself and God. Because blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he self-approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat or drink because they're eating not from faith, but everything that does not come from faith then is sin. You see, I don't want to be a part of anything or endorse anything that has enslaved my brothers and sisters in the past. The Bible said, who the Son sets free is free indeed. And I believe that God wants all of us to operate and walk in freedom 
And so I can't endorse or I can't be, be, I can't be a part of anything that, that is not part of freedom. I mean, I think our Teen Challenge brothers and sisters, I think our people that are here on Tuesday nights and celebrate recovery, I think the people that are in this room, if they're being honest and stand up and say, that's me, I've struggled in the path and I've, I'm overcoming and I'm still overcoming it. Because see, you never get away from alcoholism. I think those brothers and sisters say, just don't start, don't drink. I can't, let, I can't let the freedom that I have become a stumbling block for others. If the Bible says nothing about alcohol, if the Bible said nothing about alcohol, I would avoid it just simply because I don't want those who are struggling with it to be tempted. I want them to be free from it. See, I wish that all church leaders would abstain from it and choose God and choose the church family before they even take that first drink. This is a big statement I'm about to make, but if chocolate was a stumbling block to people in the church, I would abstain from chocolate. And those of you that know me know that is a big deal for me right there. But I wouldn't do it. See, I've heard people say this, if I can't drink, then I just won't be involved in ministry at your church, then I just won't do it. Can I just say that might be revealing that you might have a problem if you need it that much? Or I've heard people say, I'll just go to a church that allows it, because there's churches, especially in California, that just allow for drinking. And if your goal is to find a church that enables you to drink and allows you to participate in destructive behaviors like this, then I ask the question, what's wrong with that church and what's wrong with your motives? Say, I love you and I want you to walk in freedom, the freedom of the Spirit. Do not be drunk on wine, as some suppose, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we're to be controlled by nothing but we're let the Holy Spirit to control us, the God to have his way in our lives. The Apostle Paul said this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 13, and I'll finish very quickly, but I have the right to do anything, so you can do it if you want to. But not everything's beneficial. So I just ask you, is it beneficial? Is it beneficial to your health? Is it beneficial as the temple of God? Is it beneficial to your witness? Is it beneficial to your family? Is it beneficial to your children? Is it beneficial to your grandchildren? Is it beneficial to, your, to the people around? Is it beneficial? And you have the right. It says you have the right. And Paul goes on to say, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. For you say food for the stomach and a little stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. For the body, however, is, meant, is not meant for immorality, sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, the Lord for this body. I'm going to give you very quick things why I, just very practical, why I absolutely hate alcohol. Number one, and I'll go quickly, and you might want to just jot these down. You can look at them later. But number one is this, because I believe that, you know, because alcohol is addictive. And anything that is addictive controls you, and anything that controls you, I think, is wrong. Number two, I hate alcohol because I've seen people go through detox. See, I've been the pastor that gets the call that say, would you come? My son or daughter, my husband, my wife is at the hospital and I go to the detox center and I see people with the shakes and the shimmers and the dry heaves and the hallucinations to the point where they sometimes have to be restrained in their own bed until they get through that process. And I can't look at those people in good conscience and say, I think that's good for you. I hate alcohol because, number three, because my heart has been saddened by children whose entire lives are impacted by fetal alcohol syndrome. Because a mom was too selfish to say no to drinking while she was pregnant. And it affected these children's lives for the rest of their lives. It's wrong. I hate alcohol because 623,000 12 to 17 year olds are alcoholics in our country. I hate alcohol, number five, because alcohol is the leading cause of death among teenagers. Maybe you saw in the news a frat student who died at a party. His parents have been all over the news about six months ago. And people were stepping over him in the party, and they didn't realize he was even dead until the next day when they were actually cleaning up the mess from the party that had taken place. Fifteen million Americans are alcoholics, and that's 15 million families who have been affected. That's 15 million homes whose finances have been greatly devastated or impacted, Children's lives have been negatively impacted. Relationships, families, covenant marriages have been destroyed. Number six, I hate alcohol because 696,000 18 to 24-year-olds are assaulted by someone who has been drinking. 
hate alcohol number seven because one in five college students meet the criteria for what for the definition of alcoholism it's 20 percent of everyone that's in our colleges in the USA, there's 88,000 deaths a year that are alcohol-related, making it the number four leading preventable cause of death. Think about it. Almost 10,000 people die of alcohol-related fatality each and every year. 31% of all traffic accidents are alcohol-related. I hate alcohol, number nine, because if you drink alcohol, you're 5,000 times more likely to commit suicide. A third of all suicides and a third of all mental disorders are due to alcohol abuse. I hate alcohol, number 10, because alcohol can lead to bad behavior. 40% of all violent crimes have an alcohol is listed as the factor. So I've never heard anyone say, if only I'd taken one more drink, things wouldn't have gotten out of control. Everything would have been okay if I'd have just had one more drink. Everything would have been all right. Never heard that. Have you? I hate alcohol, number 11, because alcohol is a depressant. And I'm against anything that brings depression into your body. For there's too, too many people struggling with real life depression. Alcohol skews your senses. And in a world that we live in today, we need to, our guards to be up, not to be down. And I simply can't put my stamp of approval upon something that would harm you, your children, and the students that are in our church or in our community. I can't say yes to something that would put them at greater risk for depression, alcoholism, or even sexual assault. So will drinking send you to hell? No. I can't be dogmatic about that. However, I can't find one redeeming quality or positive reason to drink. Not one. Oh, well, there's health benefits. You know there's the exact same health benefits in grape juice without the alcohol? The exact same. I'm just saying. I don't know anybody that says, you know, my family was made better because of drinking. So for all these reasons, as a matter of own personal conscience and social protest, I don't drink. And I never have. I said no in seventh grade, and I haven't had any alcohol my entire life. I thank God for preserving me, and he was protecting me and watching over me for ministry, even before I became a Christian. Drinking doesn't make my life or your life better. But I submit to this, it can make it worse. Think about it this way. How many of you would buy a toy for your child or your grandchildren that a third of them, if they played with it, it would bring irreparable harm to them? You know, this might destroy your life, but here you go. It's two-thirds of the people are okay. You wouldn't do that. In fact, if there's a defect in a car that's manufactured, then we recall that part or we recall that car and we take it off the street until it's repaired. If there's just a dozen or so deaths that occur, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are dying every year because of alcohol-related issues. Why do we continue to allow drinking to be a part of our society? My challenge for you tonight as I bring us to a close is this, is to abstain. I think prevention is better than a cure. See, I think what we have done is we have allowed our culture and we've allowed society to rewrite what is okay, what is moral for us instead of the Bible telling us what is right. I think there's enough biblical evidence, and there's 200 verses, 200 verses that deal with it. You can go look them all up yourself. I've only shared a handful with you tonight. But I think if you were to honestly look at all 200 verses and the impact of alcohol or alcoholism can have upon you and your family and your life and your witness and your testimony to God, that you would come to the same conclusion that I have, that abstinence is truly the best practice, that there isn't a reason to drink I'll end with this. Romans 13, 13 and 14 says, because we belong to the day. One version says, because we belong to the light. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the drunkenness of wild parties and, drunk, and drunkenness, or the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness, or sexual promiscuity, or immoral living, or in quarreling, or in jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires.
I haven't probably made an ironclad case for you to not drink if you like to do it. Or if you're, I'm controlled or I'm a moderate drinker, I can do it. I understand that. And if you're one of those people that say, see, pastor's right, I was right. He Look at all those scriptures. You know, I, I get that. I said that at the very beginning. But I do think that you should ask the Holy Spirit before we leave here. What is just? What is right? What is proper? For me as a child of God, for someone who wants to please God with all that I am, recognizing that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that I am not my own, that I have been bought with a price, recognizing the devastation and the destruction that alcohol could bring into our lives or that I could be passing on to somebody else even if it doesn't devastate my life, what message am I sending? See, maybe I'm just radical. Maybe I just, maybe it's just because I have this call of God in my life. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor. But there's just certain things that I don't do. I don't go into a casino. Anything wrong with it? No, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, in fact, I hear the buffets are really good. And they seem to be cheaper than any other buffets in town. I'm tempted to go and get that lobster buffet and all you can beat, prime rib. And in fact, I'm ready to go there now. But I have a really good friend that struggled with gambling addiction. And say, I wouldn't want him to be in the car dealing with the Holy Spirit and saying, God, I'm fighting whether he shouldn't, shouldn't go in. And being tempted in that moment. And then I walk out and all I've done is enjoyed a buffet. But he thinks that I've been in the casino. And the enemy uses that as an example for him to say it's okay. Pastor, what are the odds of that happening? I don't know. But it's just too great if one life is destroyed because of the way I've lived my life. One person, if I put them on the wrong road and I have to stand before God and give an account. See, the Bible says that we are our brother's keeper and that I am not living life in a Christian vacuum of one, but we live life in a Christian vacuum of community of all connected to the body of Christ. And what I do matters and how I live matters and how you, what you do and how you live your life matters. And so I just ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to pray and I'll let you go. And I, listen, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you walk out of here, there's no conviction. There's no change of lifestyle. Am I going to love you? Yes. Am I coming to your house tomorrow to check your cupboards or your you know, refrigerator? No, I'm not the alcohol police nor the Holy Spirit. So no. If you invite me to your house, am I going to snoop? No, 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 no. That's not what it's about. But I don't want culture to impact the way we live our lives. I want the Bible to impact the way we live our lives. So I just want you to consider it. Will you, will you at least be an openness to God tonight, the Holy Spirit, as we pray? Will you close your eyes, bow your heads with me? God, all over this building, I pray and I ask for you to have your way in our hearts and our lives. Lord, our greatest desire is a Christian should be to be Christ-like. There's no example in Scripture where you ever took a drink. We want to please you. We want to honor you. We want our lives, God, to be an example of godliness and purity and sanctity. Not that which is common, but that which was uncommon. Not that which is common, but that which is holy. Not that which was common, but that which is righteous. For you've commanded all of us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that our job is to pursue holiness out of a reverence for God. God, we don't want to do anything that would cause our brothers, our sisters, God, those that have come in from the world and found this great faith of ours that has set us free. We don't want to be a stumbling block to them. We don't want to be a temptation to them. And God, we don't want to be a false witness in our communities. 
Lord, check our motives of why we even do what we do, whether it's in this area or any other area. Why are we living our lives in the way we live it? Is it a way in which it honors you to its fullness? Or God, is there some area that we can do better in? Lord, please help us to let our light shine bright so people will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Help us, Father, I pray, particularly with this subject, Lord, to know how to live our lives and what you ask us to do. And I pray for an openness of heart. I pray for an openness of mind. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. And Lord, I pray that whatever you're speaking to people, even right now, would you give them the courage, God, to make those changes and to walk in that truth. And Lord, again, there's no condemnation in you. So Lord, if there's no conviction of heart, if there's no change that's required in people's life, then we can leave here knowing that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all part of your family. And we love each other and we love you. So God, I pray your blessing upon your church. I ask God for your hand to be upon them. I ask, pray, I pray God that this week will be an incredible week. And Lord, as we look for as we look towards Sunday to come together to worship in spirit and in truth. May your presence be here. May the word go forth. May you anoint us. May you speak to us, God. May you continue to change us and make us into your image. God, we love you with all of our heart. That's our goal. That's our desire. We love you. Jesus, we love you. You said we're to love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with our mind, with all of our bodies and to love our neighbors ourselves. So we lay down our rights, we pick up our responsibilities. We pick up our cross. God, we carry it every day, knowing that you first showed us your love by taking your cross and dying for us. So Lord, may we do that for someone else so that freedom can reign in our lives and theirs. I thank you for the attentiveness of this audience. I thank you for their for their sincerity, God of heart, and for their desire to serve you. I pray, God, your greatest blessing on them. And I ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Love you. God bless you.